Uh, we ask again, Heavenly Father, that as we turn our minds to your word, that you would talk to us today. And Father, we pray that your spirit would come upon us, that we might hear, that we might understand. And especially, Father, that we pray for your spirit to come to us, that we might be obedient to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last week, one of the things that we were saying was that uh, with Paul, the initial contact with the Philippians, uh, Paul has actually entered into a partnership with them. Uh, a partnership in the Gospel. They're not just passive members, uh, but they're actually partners in this great business. Uh, this great business of uh, proclaiming the Gospel. And you remember that right at the beginning, they offered him hospitality. Right at the beginning, they took him into their homes. Right at the beginning, even after he left, uh, they kept on praying for him and they continued to pray for him. They sent him money several times. Repeatedly they've been funding him in the task of preaching and proclaiming the gospel, wherever he was. And even when he was in prison, they sent one of uh, their own members, Epaphroditus, who nearly died on the way, to look after him in prison. Uh, and uh, as uh, Paul was struggling, they themselves, back in Philippi, were standing firm in the truth, standing firm for the gospel, standing in the face of opposition uh, that Paul himself was suffering, for they too were suffering with him. And so Paul actually writes to partners. Partners in the gospel work together. And I guess in some ways, it, as we talk about membership today, uh, that's one of the things that I like, I'd like you to think about, that membership isn't just passively signing up for a club or something like that, but they were actually actively involved. Uh, actively involved in the proclamation of the gospel. Something that's bigger than our club and society, certainly something bigger than yourself, but something that's about proclaiming the gospel, the defence, the confirmation of the gospel throughout the world. That's a great thing to be a partner and I encourage you to sign up for that. But EU meetings at lunchtime, they're public meetings, uh, which means that not all of us here are members and I'm glad that you're here with us. And I hope that as you find out more and more about what the Evangelical Union does, is proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord, those three objects that you can read in, in the flyers that you've got with you, that you'll take it uh, that you want to be a, a partner uh, and become a member with us soon. And I'll take it that some of you here uh, not only aren't members, but aren't Christians at all. And again, we're very glad that you're here. It's great to have friends who don't know uh, the Lord Jesus Christ yet with us. And I hope that as you come to hear more of what the Bible says, that you won't only just end up being members of the EU or something ridiculous like that, but you actually end up being members of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, which is even far greater and uh, far more important. Uh, as Lauren said a little bit earlier, next week is a great chance for you to respond to that Gospel. Uh, hopefully next week I'll outline the Gospel in even more clarity than what I've been doing, understanding it so that you can actually respond to it and you'll be given an opportunity next week. Um, but a reminder about last week again, Paul writes, in all my prayers for all of you, in chapter 1, verse 4, uh, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about you, uh, since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. They shared with, God, uh, shared with Paul in this great task, of confirming and of defending the gospel, putting it forward, defending it against its attack and confirming its truth. Now, we've actually skipped a big section at the end of uh, chapter 1 and we're jumping into chapter 3, uh, but what we have here is a fairly familiar passage, I think, to a lot of us. Uh, it's it's musicised uh, in, in lots of places, you sing it, uh, most of you have it as your favourite verse. So hopefully, as we come to it today, it actually comes to you afresh. Uh, because here is Paul's desire for his Philippine partners. 
They've been partners in this work for a long time now. And as partners, what would Paul want? What would Paul want for his partners? What does Paul want for his partners? And it says it there in verse 27 that they'll conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Have a look with me uh, in the passage. It's there in the middle of the, uh, in, on the top of your outlines. The passage that's printed, verse 27 of chapter 1. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. <laughs> now, I think if you're studying the book of uh, Philippians, uh, I, I think if you want a topic sentence or a, a sentence or a verse that summarizes the whole of Philippians, this is the key to, to what the whole letter is about. Uh, It's Paul's challenge to the Christians in Philippi to live a life to conduct themselves in a way that's worthy of the gospel. Whatever happens to him, whether he dies, whether he's released, if he's released, whether he actually goes to them uh, and visits them, or whether he only hears about them, or if he's not released and he stays in prison for many more years as he's had already, whatever happens to him, he wants them to live a life worthy of the gospel. That's Paul's great desire that I think summarises the whole of Philippians which is Paul's desire for his partners. So I guess your question to me is, great, that's a lovely thing to say. Uh, Paul wants his Philippian partners to live a life worthy of the gospel. But what does it actually mean? What does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? And you'll see it there in the second half of verse uh, 27 and verse 28. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I'll know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. See, that's how you live a life worthy of the gospel. Now, there are lots of ways of living a life worthy of the gospel. Uh, You don't steal, you don't cheat, uh, you pick up the rubbish around about you as you leave the lecture theatre, you help little old ladies across the street. You can do all sorts of things to live a life worthy of the gospel. But what does Paul mean here, when he's using that phrase, is that you'll stand firm that you'll contend for the faith of the gospel, that you'll stand firm in one spirit and that you'll contend as one man, you'll contend as one person, that you'll contend as one. And if you stand firm in the gospel, contending for the truth of the gospel, that you'll do it without fear of those who oppose you. That's how you live a life worthy of the gospel in Paul's language here. If you want to live life worthy of the gospel, then stand. You live a, want to live a life worthy of the gospel, then contend for your faith. Contentious Christianity. And that's how we've got today's title of today's talk, really. That's where it comes from. That's what partnership in the defence and the confirmation of the gospel actually involves. And they're suffering because of it. And there will be opposition. But Paul says, stand. Live a life worthy of the gospel. How? Stand firm in the gospel. And if you contend for uh, the gospel, Paul actually outlines a couple of pressures here. A couple of pressures that you're likely to face. Two threats that come for all Christians. The external and also the internal. And the external threat is fairly obvious. Verse 28 talks about it. Those who oppose you is what he says. He talks about those who oppose you. For Paul and the Philippians, that might mean going to jail. That would probably mean being stoned. It might mean being expelled from your town or from your home or from commerce. It might mean execution. It might mean being sewn up in in the carcass of an animal and being roasted alive as a Roman candle. It can mean all those things. And yet for many Christians today, it's exactly the same thing, I think. Uh, Here at Sydney University, we're free to meet. It's a beautiful thing. Even if it's in a lecture theatre that's the same for 20 years, unrenovated, we can still meet. It's it's beautiful. Uh, We can use facilities that are given to us through the good grace of the university. But that's not the case in many countries around the world. I actually get a newsletter called Voice of the Martyrs. I don't know how I got it, but I end up being on their mailing list, and I really appreciate it. It's called The Voice of the Martyrs. Here's some recent articles just in the last two months. In Laos, 
give, up, give up Jesus or die is the headline. Christians in Laos have been told that they'll be killed if they do not give up their faith or leave their village. They're given a choice. Uh, car bombing at the Bible Society in Pakistan injures and kills at least 11 people. Uh, the churches in Indonesia are being forced to close. In Vietnam, 56 leaders and house church pastors have been sentenced to jail from 2 years to 11 years. In Sri Lanka, church attacks are escalating. In Turkey, converts are severely beaten. In Uzbekistan, there's no peace for the church because rebel groups are rising up and destroying the church. The reality is that there are still many countries where you cannot become a Christian without risking imprisonment. You cannot preach to others about the Lord Jesus Christ without risking imprisonment or exile, being cut off from the community, being in financial difficulty. In some countries, it's not just imprisonment, but floggings and lashings and executions. For us in Australia, the pressures of external opposition, they're not so barbaric and they're not so physical and not so extreme. And I'm very glad of it. And we should keep on praying to God that our government will grant us peace so that we can preach the gospel in peace, in harmony. And there's something weird about people who think, well, we're not being persecuted enough, and therefore we're not the true church, and so let's pray for persecution. Um, I think that's just masochism. Uh, It's not like that. It's great that we pray for peaceful government, that we can actually do the things that we can do. But the pressures are increasing nonetheless. Uh, As I look around, Christianity is being censored out of public debate and discussion. Uh, We're bullied into science in the name of being politically correct, uh, about tolerant relativism, uh, we're thoroughly welcome, provided we shut up about the only thing, or the, the thing that really matters to us in our life, the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we care to keep on talking about him, well, we're unwelcomed as members of society. We're labelled as fundamentalist extremists. We've got great freedom in this land, but often it's the freedom to be quiet, freedom to remain silent. Paul didn't promise an easy life for his Philippine partners, nor should we expect it. But he challenged them in verse 28 of chapter 1 to stand firm, he challenged them to stand firm without being frightened of our opponents. You see, it says there, fearlessness, signs of supernatural salvation. Do you see it there in verse 28? This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. Do not be afraid, do not fear. And I think we tend to think that the world will be impressed by us and the gospel if we're impressive. Uh, I'm in charge of the public meetings team, and one of the things that I love to see public meetings team, uh, public meetings happen, is that it's become an impressive large meeting. Uh, as you come in, there's music in the background streaming through, ushers who welcome you to the seats. You know, afterwards in afternoon tea, there's a little table set outside with lovely checked tablecloth and they're serving coffee and tea. People are playing soccer and playing giant jingle, all sorts of stuff can happen. It can be impressive, it can be big, right? And thousands of people come. But that's not what it's about. Ultimately, the world is impressed by us and the gospel when we suffer fearlessly and with patience. Now, I don't know what books that you do in high school nowadays, but many years ago, uh, one of the texts that I had for year 11, I think, was a book by uh, a guy called Alexander Zolzhenitsyn, One Day in the Life of Ivan Dmitrovich. Terrible book if you haven't been because it, you can't spell it. Um, but he, he was a guy who actually wrote fictional accounts of his real-life experience in the Russian gulags. Uh, he uh, came from Soviet Russia, uh, and he actually criticised uh, the, the, the Marxist regime at the time and so he was sent for, uh, to the gulags, to the prison camps, for correction. Um, and as a humanist, he went in, a man of principle, fighting against communists, he was sent to the gulags, but a man without belief in God, really. And yet one of the things that he saw inside the camps of horror, of torture, was that those without belief in God actually soon caved in. 
And those who actually believed in the Lord Jesus Christ stood firm against the most awful of tortures. Solzhenitsyn went in as an atheist and instantly came out a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ for the way in which he saw Christians suffer without fear, standing firm. For Christians actually have something more to live for than just a, a, some funny belief. It's a life that changes. But there's a second uh, threat that Paul actually outlines there, and it's the internal threat of disunity, of disharmony, of, of division. So when he says to stand firm, how would you stand firm? He says there, we're to stand firm in one spirit. He says there, when, it, when we're to contend, how we're to contend, we're to contend as one man, as one person, as one. So under the threat of seeming defeat, I think the easiest thing to do is to fight and squabble amongst yourself. When you're facing opposition that you can't stand, or it's difficult to stand, what you end up doing is bickering and infighting within yourself. Uh, some of you know that I'm a bit of a rugby nut. And I think one of the best illustrations of this was that many years ago, uh, back in the early 1990s, 1991, I remember watching the Australian rugby team beating the Welsh, I think 61 to zil, right? 61 mil. It was just a massive massacre. And you can see it in the body language of the Welsh who watched, uh, walked off the, the team. <coughs> Heads were hanging low and all that sort of stuff. But what really, cut, what really clinched it was that in the celebration dinner after the meeting, they weren't, just, they weren't congratulating the Australians, they, they couldn't do that. But they actually had a massive brawl amongst themselves, right? A prop was fighting against the back, the management was fighting amongst the team members, and it was 50 cups all around. You know, if they only had spent that energy on the field, it was just incredible. Face, facing opposition, facing defeat, face defeat, what did they do? They bigger amongst themselves. They slugged each other. And yet Jesus said, it's by, the lo- by your love for one another that the world will recognise that you are his disciples. It's so different. It's so different. It's about the unity. It's about one spirit. It's about one man. One person contending for the faith. Well, I guess the question you, you want to ask is, what's the key to this unity? That's great, Paul. I, I want to live life worthy of the gospel. And the way that I live life worthy of the gospel is by contending for the faith. And the way that I contend for the faith is to stand in unity as one person. How do I do that? What's the key to this unity? And the key to this unity is actually humility that you'll read in chapter 2, 1 to 11. Now part of our problem is that we don't see that link because most of our Bibles have a great chapter division. So chapter 1 finishes, there's a, a heading that's put in by the publishers, there's a big whopping chapter 2 number that's put in, and so often you think, okay, new section. And in most sermons that you hear in Philippians chapter 2, you begin it in Philippians chapter 2, two verse 1. It seems like a, a, a different section altogether. And yet the original didn't have verse numbers, didn't have chapter numbers, didn't have spacing between sections, didn't have uh, 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 titles that were put in. It's actually one slab. And what's worse is that here in the NIV that's quoted uh, is that it's missing a really important word, the word therefore. Now, when I was studying um, uh, English, Whenever you see a therefore, I was told, you need to work out what it's there for. Right? It's one of those really important words. It's a really significant word. Uh, because it actually summarises the argument before. And this is the conclusion. Right? Given what's happened before, this is the conclusion. So, if you've got a Bible there that hasn't got the word like so, or because, or write it in. This is how to stand firm in one spirit. This is how to contend as one person without fear. And it starts off, therefore, if. For if and a then, if then argument. It goes, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, 
if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Four reason and then. It's a complicated sentence, but you can actually see the structure there, can't you? If, 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 then do this. You see the logic? If you have this, these things, then this is what you're supposed to do. Let's break it apart bit by bit. Uh, because I think the words encouragement there and comfort are really synonyms. Uh, the encouragement that we have from being united with Christ, that's really Old Testament concepts. They're really Old Testament ideas. But you find them actually in the beginning of chapter 40 in Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah. A very important book of the Old Testament, which I'm really glad that public meetings are putting on this year. And it goes through the book of Isaiah in detail. So that you're going to finish off this year saying, yeah, I get Isaiah, I understand it. But it's a really important chapter, chapter 40. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. Their warfare is over. That judgment, the judgment day of God, is taken away. God who withdraws from his people is coming back again. You're going to find comfort. The new age is about to happen. And when God comes and meets with his people, there'll be a new exodus and the people will be taken out of the exile, out of slavery into Babylon and brought into the promised land. And God will be there. And so if you remember Jesus, if you remember his sermon on the mount, says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's that word again. In the coming of Jesus actually comes the comfort of salvation that he brings. It's a very significant word. And the fellowship that he's speaking of here in chapter 1 is the fellowship in the Spirit. When Jesus died and when he rose again, he poured out his spirit on all flesh, as the Old Testament actually prophesied, in places like Joel chapter 2, in places like Ezekiel chapter 36, where the spirit of God is to be poured out to all people. And remember when Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. What did he say? Born of the spirit if you are to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you are any comfort, if you are any fellowship, if you are any share, any participation in the spirit, and then it goes on, if you have any tenderness, any compassion, not that you are tender, not that you're compassionate, but if you know anything of the tenderness and compassion of God, for our God is a tender God, our God is a compassionate God. If you know these things, the forgiveness, the salvation, the loving mercy, the spiritual rebirth, if you're a Christian, in other words, this is what Christians are. People who know the encouragement and the comfort of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been born again by the Spirit, who are in fellowship with Him, because we know the tender mercies of God who says, you're forgiven for Jesus has paid the penalty for you. If you know anything of the things of Christ, says Paul, then make my joy complete. Fulfill my joy. Give me that which I'm wanting. Make my joy complete is what he wants. Remember, Paul writes his partners here, his close friends, his close partners that he shared so much with. This is what I want, this is what I want from you guys. Make my joy complete. And how they to complete his joy? Well, you see it there in the next verse, in chapter 2, verse 2. By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. That's how they're to complete his joy. That's how you're to do it. It sounds like four things, but it's actually one thing. Like-minded, same love, one in spirit, one in purpose. It's actually the one thing, isn't it? It's being united, standing together as one. That's how they'll be completing his joy. If Paul hears fact about his partners that they're disagreeing with one another, fighting with one another, quarrelling with one another, squabbling with each other, well that will give him enormous heartache because they'll be not, they won't be walking in a way that's worthy of the gospel. For you only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel 
when you're contending as one person, when you're standing firm in the one spirit, and if you're divided, you're requiring, if you're squabbling, well, you're letting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ down. Notice the character of the unity that is being talked about here, though. It's not formal unity. It's not structural unity. It's not organisational unity. It's not about having the right membership forms. It's not having a common badge or we wear the same t-shirt. That's not the kind of unity that Paul's talking about. That's not the nature of Christianity. It's not about uniformity, but it's actually about unity of mind. That's what he's talking about. A unity that comes from diversity of the same mind, the same love, the one spirit, the same purpose. He's talking about having a common understanding, a common understanding of real agreement. That's what he's talking about. Not just formal and structural unity, but a unity of minds. It's not uniformity, but unity in diversity. Um, I don't know whether you remember those uh, primary school recorder groups. I was in one, you're probably in one. It's, one of, it's on the curriculum, I think, that you have to play those things. Um, do you remember how they sound? Uh, they, they're just... <laughs> Everybody trying to play the same note and they're slightly out of tune and yet you're trying to do it together in time and it's disgusting. Christian unity isn't about school recorder groups. Christian unity. Don't think school recorder groups, don't think primary school recorder groups, think symphony orchestra. I, I, I used to love um, subscribing to the ABC Youth uh, Series concert. And, and it wasn't just the fact of hearing, but when you saw it, it was just amazing. You had people playing metal instruments and wood instruments, people with strings, and there were people bashing on skins, and all sorts of stuff that were happening that you think, man, if, if you saw them individually and had to put them together, you think, that's chaos. That's just ridiculous. And yet when you see it and when you listen to it, it's an enormous, beautiful piece of music, a wonderful harmony. And that's what the Christian church is like, I think. It's not about uniformity. But people excelling in the things that they do and working together so that the piece of music that comes out is fantastic. It's melodic. One of the things I love about the EU is that it's an interdenominational group. We've got people from Anglican churches and Presbyterian churches and Uniting churches and all sorts of funny churches like Chinese churches and stuff like that. But there's all sorts of things that... People with a whole lot of different cultures and yet we can stand together, one in Christ Jesus, because we come to a common mind. I, I can still remember uh, when I was working at the at University of New South Wales, working for a group called Focus, the Fellowship of Overseas Christian University Students. And I still remember seeing a Vietnamese girl and a Cambodian girl sitting together, praying together. And you sort of think, so what? Right? A couple of Asians praying together, you see that every day, really. Until you remember that the Vietnamese and the Cambodians have been fighting with each other for 3,000 years. The grandfathers, the great-grandfathers, the grandfathers before that, have been at war each other, with each other. The crazy little things. They hate each other's guts. And yet two of their descendants, because they're one in the Lord Jesus Christ, can actually sit down and pray together and love each other's sisters. A few years ago, the president of EU, a guy called Murray Smith, went to uh, the Amsterdam uh, Billy Graham uh, Evangelism Crusade. And he came back reporting on it. It was just an amazing event. At that event, there were more nations represented than the United Nations. There were more nations represented there than the Olympic Games. And on the stage, there was a Serb and a Croat hugging each other. People that hate each other, that could be united because of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Our unity is to be a unity of like-mindedness, of having the same love for one another that Jesus had for us, in laying down his life for us, being of the one spirit of mind and purpose. That's unity of Christian unity. It's not the unity of relativism, where we get by fabulously with each other by ignoring each other, or that we realise that we're in total disagreement and so we just pretend that we're saying the same thing. But we never actually come to a mind on the evening. What Paul is talking about is a common mind which we come to by the study of God's word, which we come to by discussion with each other, praying with each other, being willing to forego some of our most cherished and lovely ideas to take on other people's ideas as we listen, as we think on the word of God. Four is, one thing. That's how you do it. By being united, having that one mind. Okay, but how we can have such unity? We've got close to 500 people coming to EU public meetings each week. How are we, as partners in the Gospel, to be united? And it seems very difficult. 500 individuals, it seems very unlikely. And verses 3 and 4 explain to it in two terms. For there are two key terms to help us understand how we're to do it. It's not this, but that. Two not thises, but that. In verse 3, you'll see it. Not self, be it selfish ambition or vain conceit. It's not self, but others. It's a humility whereby you consider others better than yourself. Or in verse 4, not looking to your own interests, but again, it's the other people's interests. Not this, but that. Not self, but others. In each of them, it's not yourself, it's not your own, but the other person's interest. It's the other person's sentiments of our life. And so it's not self, not our own, but others. And so, do you see the, the, the key to the source of disunity? It's about self, self-ambition, self-conceit, self-interest. And the key to the cure of disunity, you find it here, other person-centeredness. You consider others better than yourself. Not better in the sense that they're better, more able than you. It's only because we live in a meritocracy society that we actually think that way. No, no, better than yourself in that they're more important than yourself. I mean, I mustn't think that the other person is better than me at playing tennis. If I've just beaten them six love, six love, six love, you know? You thrash them, you walk off the, the tennis court and you say, you're better than me. That's just ridiculous. Mind you, that's never happened to me in my life. Uh, I can't play tennis for anything, and uh, my daughter Anastasia is just about to turn two. I'm looking forward to the day that she can hold a tennis racket. There'll be someone I can actually beat in tennis. Um, but having just done that to them, you can't do that. What you're saying is, I must be thinking of the other person as better than me in being more important than me. Their needs, their interests, their concerns are more significant than me than my interests, my needs and my concerns. And so as he puts it in the second verse, look not to your own interests, but to other people's interests. I wonder if you remember those uh, school groups, those cliques that you were part of. Uh, you know, one group doesn't talk to that other group, and if that group talks to this third group over there, well, you don't talk to that other group any, anymore. Uh, do you remember that sort of stuff? What's it all about? What lies at the heart of disunity of uh, those quarrels there? It's all about self. Self-ambition, self-conceit, people looking after their own interests. If I talk to those people, will people think less of me? They slander, they malign, they're not concerned about other people and other people's interests. They're concerned about lifting themselves up and their own pecking order. And you might even see it in your own groups here, the, the EU or the university. You see it at work, you see it in the family, you see it all over the place. But if you see it here, you must never see it here. You should never see it here. 
Because this is really a place that is supposed to be different. People have experienced the encouragement of being united with Christ, the comfort from his love, the fellowship with the Spirit, the tender compassionateness of God. If you experience those things, then you should no longer be living for yourself, but for him who died for you, and you should be living for others. That's how it is. It's supposed to be radically different, not for self, but for others. I still remember uh, living in boarding school. Uh, I did go through that experience. Uh, eight years of it, mind you. Uh, and I'm sort of still okay, I think. Um, but I still remember being one of those kids that was uh, fairly mischievous, I guess, uh, is probably a nice way of putting it. Um, but I remember my house captain always coming up to me, being nice to me. He was a Christian man. Uh, Cave, we used to call him. His name is Andrew Mitchell. Um, but one of the things that he always used to do was look out for us, uh, the bunch of us who were always mucking around, sitting beside us, making sure that we were okay, showing that love that was just incredible. Uh, and one day I asked him, so why do you bother? Why do you bother doing that? And I still remember him saying to me, Michael, if you're good enough for Jesus to die for you, you're good enough for me. We, we're in a fellowship of people who live together only because of what Christ has done for us. At the Ministrani Conference this year, uh, the conference that kicks off the EU year, uh, uh, people who gather together to do the O-Week sort of mission, O-Week contacting. I was reminded of something that I learned as a child. It's childish, but just because it's childish is no reason that you shouldn't learn it as well. Uh, Paul says, complete my joy, he says. And the way that you complete, uh, get joy, when I was taught as a child and I was reminded, was that you put Jesus first, others second, and yourself third. That's what joy stands for, J-O-Y. Right? And I think about it, I think... I was told that when I was about 12 years old. Uh, the headmaster of my school told me that. And I'm forever grateful of him reminding me about that. Because it's an absolute fundamental of life that you live for Jesus first, others second, and yourself third. That's what creates joy, not just for yourself, but for others, and more importantly, for Jesus, whom you live for. Because that's the one for you, whom you live first. That's a way of joy. And so the key to our participation in the Gospel is the Christian mind. Because our Lord didn't think of himself, but for us. Because Christians are people who no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Because now as Christians, therefore, we must live like him. How do we live like him? Well, God's God of love, so we should be loving. But what's it all about? It's about him giving, not taking. Now, you, you read it there. Therefore, being found by nature, being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, something for taking, something for taking advantage of. He saw being in the very nature of God, the way to be godly, is by giving, by humbling, by loving. And so he gave himself. Gave himself fully to become a servant, to become a human, to save humans. He became obedient, obedient even to death. That humiliating execution by crucifixion. That's what it is to be God, if you want to be God. You see God in all his grandeur. When you see a man executed on a cross in Palestine, there you see God giving of himself. Do you want to be God-like? Would you want to be like Christ? Then you must give. You must serve. You must be humble. That is true humility, that God should become man, that God should become a slave, that God should become obedient to death, that God dies our death for us. That's the greatest love of all. Uh, I wanted to play for you uh, a song that was popular in the 80s but I couldn't get it to, to go through the system. But one of the great songs of the 80s was a song by Whitney Houston, The Greatest Love of All. And so you'll be glad that you were actually spared from that. 
Um, but this is the lyrics, right? Whitney says, I've been looking for a hero, but I've never found one to meet my dreams. She's never met the Lord Jesus Christ, has she? She's never met a hero that matches up to what you look for. Very sad that she doesn't know her, being a, a, a preacher's wife. And so because she's never found a hero that you can really look up to, what she learnt to do? She learnt to depend on me. That's being a child of Adam, that's being the daughter of Eve. I am God, is what she says. But if you really are God, then you'd learn that the greatest love of all is to give yourself away in the service of other people. For that's what God is like. That he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. But no, she learns to depend on me. But if she was really God, then when God became flesh, what did he do? He was obedient to his father, saying, not my will, but your will be done. Not someone who says, well, I'm going to do my thing my way. Because loving myself is the most important thing. And I hope that other people can learn to love themselves as much as I've learned to love my lovely self. It's the epitome of arrogance to think that the greatest love of all is to love yourself. Back in the 80s, the world loved that song. It stayed number one for weeks because it captured what the world, the children of Adam and Eve, actually believe. They know no way to joy. Y-O-J spells jodge, I think. It doesn't spell joy. They know nothing of it. For they know nothing of humility. See, true humility is saying, not my way, but God's way. And therefore, because Jesus took, away, uh, took the way of true humility, God exalted him. He humbled himself to die in obedience to sin, and God vindicated him, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because of his loving humility, all will ultimately see that God's Son is God indeed. Well, it's time to conclude, and uh, I've got three sets of conclusions there. There's a set of theological conclusions. Uh, implications, I want to draw some conclusions because that's where I want to make sense of the book of Philippians that we're doing and from that uh, a few conclusions for ourselves. Uh, the theological conclusions are enormous I think. Uh, chapter 2 verses 5 to 11 I think is one of the most important statements about God in the Bible, one of the most important statements of the mind of Christ and the purpose of God and I've only looked at it in, in, in brief uh, because we're trying to hold Philippians together as a, as a book. But you've got to note in passing that it teaches us all these things about God. And hopefully you'll enjoy going to annual conferences here and spending those five solid days looking at the cross of Christ, looking at what God has done. Because it teaches us here, Christ's humility comes from being in the very nature of God. It's being in the very nature of God that he didn't count equality of God something to be grasped. That's what sin is at the end, grasping for equality of God, wanting to call yourself God. But he said, no, no, I forego that, I'm going to humble myself. And you notice there, secondly, that Christ's humility is voluntary. He humbled himself, verses 6 to 8 there. He's the subject of every verb that you read in those verses. He did this, he himself. And you'll see in verses 9 to 11, the sovereign God who's got the plans mapped out from the beginning of creation to the end of the world, that the sovereign God has in, in control, that he's the, 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 the subject of every verb. God raised him up, that he's the object, uh, 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 that Jesus is the object of verbs in 9 to 11. He humbled himself voluntary, and yet the Son of God actually rose him from, uh, raised him from the dead. And you also see here that Jesus' obedience led to death. Death on the cross. That's what we're going to be looking at um, in, in at annual conference. But you also see there the exaltation. God's power and weakness is shown in the cross, 
and his magnificent power seen in that resurrection. As we look at Isaiah this year, I want you to remember the words in Isaiah 45, the next time you see them. Because there it talks about the uniqueness of the one true God, of Yahweh. It's in Him that we have salvation. It's the Yahweh, the Lord, that every knee will bow. It's the Yahweh, the Lord, that every tongue will confess. And now what do we see in Philippians? Jesus is Lord. That at every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. They're amazing statements. And it pays to pay attention to them. Uh, a lot of people say to me, man, this sounds so much like giving, this, this humility stuff, this, this other person said you stuff, what about me? And one of the things that you see here is Paul expressing himself, how he actually sustained himself in ministry. He's one who's known to be called by God. He's sure of his calling. He's one who's got great partners in the work of the gospel. But he's not doing it on himself. But here today we actually see his theological mindset and his understanding. That's thoroughly integrated. That everything he's done in understanding of who God is, he understands that God is sovereign. He entrusts himself to him. He understands that it's in weakness that you'll see God's power. He understands that there's a resurrection future life to look forward to. Well, let me remind you of the Philippian consequences as we try to keep the letter together. The reason why we started in 127 today is to try to keep uh, Philippians chapter 2, 5 to 11 in context. What does Paul want of his Philippian partners? He wants a life worthy of the gospel. That's what he wants. How are they to live a life worthy of the gospel? By standing firm. How should they stand firm? Well, to be of one mind, one spirit, being united. And how are they to be united? By humbling themselves. Humility. And of course, understanding that in Philippians will lead to us understanding conclusions for ourselves. Because that's what a Christian is, really. A Christian is a person who humbles themselves. A humble themselves before God. It's having that humility that any other humility can actually follow. It's humility to God that actually understands what a Christian is. A Christian is one who humbles themselves before Jesus. It's only as you come to this absolute humility that you'll understand that, uh, that any other humility matter. For as long as you face God thinking that you're able to save yourself, as long as you face God thinking that you're okay, as long as you face God not wanting God to save you, as long as you face God thinking that you can do without Jesus, as long as you face God assuming that God will somehow be pleased with you, then you're living in eternal arrogance and sin. For God so loved the world that he sent his only one, uh, one and only son, the only possible way by which you can be saved. Are you humble enough to accept his gifts? It takes humility. And for you who are Christians here, what are the implications for you? Well, it's about unity, isn't it? As, as you defend and confirm the gospel, our partnership actually requires us to be united. United in mind and love and spirit and purpose. And the thing that will stand in our way is disunity. It's not about having common badges, common t-shirts. It's having that common mind, based on humility, based on other people's sentiments, a concern for others. And if we're concerned rather about the advance of the gospel rather than ourselves, the welfare of others around about us, then we'll stand as one person united in the cause of the gospel. And now we think like that, we're thinking like Christ. And then we can build the unity of God's people. And then we can stand together and be worthy of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you teach us what it means to live lives worthy of the gospel. 
Sabbath teach us to be people who are willing to contend for the faith despite opposition. Father, that we will remain united as we do that. And Father, as partners in the Lord Jesus Christ, as partners in the Gospel, that we'll be humble enough to consider others first. And Father, we want to do this because Jesus is our common Lord. It's to Him that we worship. It's to Him that we bow our knees. And Father, it's in His name that we pray. Amen.